Hey there, welcome. This is Daniel M. from Beulah Alliance Church. As we open up the scriptures together, I hope this helps you know Jesus deeply and be known by him fully. Enjoy the message. Thanks, Dave. Uh, good friend, and I uh, love you, man. This, this guy's an amazing worship leader, isn't he? Uh, you know, uh, Dave, Dave was a, a rock musician for about, I don't know, 20 years or something like that, and he, was, he played, like, uh, their, their band opened for, like, Steppenwolf and a lot of these great bands back in the day. And just to see Jesus get a hold of his life and working through him has been such a joy. And uh, by the way, I think he said I was the former lead pastor. I want to clarify that. Uh, In a retirement place, uh, we're here still at uh, Beulah and still part of your church, you know, as a congregation. Sunday mornings now, we sit with family back with you and uh, are part of things. Daniel asked if I'd speak this weekend again, and I'd love to do it. Many of you are new to Beulah coming into the church. So glad you're here. I just welcome you. Uh, Just... It, God has got his hand in the church. Last weekend, 80 people getting baptized. What a blessing as a church family. Praise God. Uh, Daniel and Christina are up in uh, Lake Louise doing a marriage enrichment weekend. Uh, about 25 couples from Bueller are up with them, plus couples from across Western Canada. A great way to invest in marriages. And, uh, and he asked if I would mention that the uh, former lead to me back, whatever many years ago that is, uh, Albert Runge. Uh, some of you might remember Albert. He pastored here in the 1980s, about a decade. And, uh, and his claim to fame was uh, he was an amazing uh, guy, loved Jesus, very unique character. But he helped lead the church from 124th Street to this auditorium uh, back during that 10 years of time. And we've all been benefiting from the leadership that he had showed during that time. But Albert, at 93 years of age, went to be with Jesus this past week. And you know, the guy was such a faithful servant, he preached his last sermon on Good Friday at a senior's home. And uh, the guy, you know, he wore his boots right to the end. Great servant of Jesus. So you remember Albert. Uh, His predecessor was a guy named, uh, by the name of Towns. And uh, he pastored before that. You know what? He passed away last year. Albert, this year, I have no plans for next year. Okay, just, we're hoping it's it. I also want to thank the Oilers for putting many of you in a good mood today and uh, express my condolences to the one L.A. fan who might be here. Um, last weekend was great with the baptism, and we're going through the book of Mark. If you have your, your, uh, your, your Bible app or you have your notes or you have your Bible with you, I hope you, during a series we're going through Mark, you bring your Bible along because uh, Daniel's teaching through the book. And it's so great to see this snapshot of who Jesus is. And we're going to take the next installation in this series. This last weekend was the, was the high point of Jesus' baptism. Remember at the end of it, he came out of the water and a dove came down upon him. And there's this voice that said, this is my son and whom I am. I'm very pleased or well pleased. What a moment. Is Jesus, you might call it his coronation, the beginning of his earthly ministry. The next statement, the book of Mark, takes us by surprise. And it starts off, it says in verse 12, you know, what, what do you expect next after a moment like that? It says, at once or immediately, the Spirit sent him out into the desert. And he was in the desert or the wilderness, in some translations, for 40 days being tempted by Satan. He is with wild animals and the angels attended him. What happens after Jesus gets baptized? Not you expect. No, not, not a place of prominence, rather a place of testing, a time of temptation. And this is an amazing story, these verses. Although they're elaborated in the other Gospels, we find here offered an insightful, kind of unique, 
open window to the nature and the very character of Jesus. And this is one of the few stories in the gospel, an event in the life of Jesus, that wouldn't have been reported by an eyewitness, for this must have been a story that Jesus had told his disciples. How did Mark or Matthew or Luke know about the temptation he faced in the desert? There's only one way they could know, is maybe sitting around or walking along the road. Jesus told them about it. At some point in his ministry on earth, Jesus told his disciples about the time he spent in the wilderness, in the desert, battling temptation in a showdown with the devil. The temptation of story has been called by some uh, theologians the most sacred of stories. It bears Jesus' inmost heart and soul. It reveals who he is, this struggle that he told his disciples about. Jesus is mirroring the Exodus experience of Israel. Israel had passed through the sea in the Old Testament, then went into the wilderness for a testing experience. And Jesus passed through the waters of baptism in the River Jordan and now is led or driven. It's actually, it says the Spirit moved him, you might say, into the same wilderness, the same desert Israel had been for those 40 years for a testing experience. So with these things in mind, let's take a little dive into what Mark tells us about the trials and temptations of Jesus. Now just for a bit of a backdrop, jump into the Old Testament. After the children of Israel had gone through the wilderness for 40 years and they're about to enter into the promised land, Moses said to a new generation, he said this, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years. Why? To humble and test you. In order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. There it is, to humble and test you. Some of us know what wilderness experiences are about. It's a time of humbling, a time of testing. And I think that the Gospel of Mark, in its entirety, is giving to us a picture of Jesus that we might believe and follow him. So you might say the baptism of Jesus is like coronation. Jesus, the beloved son, the savior, the king at this baptism event. And, and most of us would have expected there to be celebration following, because it was last week. I mean, it was amazing to see the people getting baptized. There was a reception room. People went and they had snacks and there was high fives and hugs and, and pictures taken. There was celebration. But Jesus wasn't invited into a royal reception. He was appointed by the Spirit into a task of confronting the evil one in the desert. This wilderness experience or this wilderness temptation is not an unfortunate event. Rather, God is leading him here because there's this confrontation with the evil one that's going to take place. And Jesus' ultimate goal was to conquer Satan. And so he enters into this experience. Secondly, not only was it to encounter Satan, but I want you to understand something. Is Mark is giving us, to, giving us a sense of the humanity of Jesus, fully divine and few, fully human. That we have a Savior who knows us, understands us, who goes through the things that we go through. He was not living off on some ivory tower, talking to us with platitudes. I often hear people accusing, you know, like some leaders in culture, you, you talk a great line, but you don't live it. Our Savior Jesus lived it. He entered into it. When I look at this story, here's what grabs my attention. Imagine Jesus, part of the Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and Spirit, in incredible intimacy for all time past, that Jesus says in Philippians that he was willing to set aside all the prerogative of heaven to be clothed in humanity and step into the human family through a back door of a, of a manger in Bethlehem, and that he would walk as we walk and experience what we would experience. He'd be tested like we're tested and tempted like we're test and tempted and yet without sin. Our Savior rolled up his sleeves and stepped into the, the confrontation of daily life and experience. We have a Savior who understands. So Mark gives to us, in just a couple verses, a snapshot about this 
humanity of Christ entering into this journey that would ultimately lead him to a cross. So let's take a look at this. First thing Mark tells us is he endured a period of testing. He says, the Spirit led him into the desert, into the desert. He repeats it twice, which I mean, I think when someone repeats something twice, he wants you to capture the attention. He's into the wilderness. This is a place of testing throughout Scripture. It's for 40 days. Do you know in the Bible, the number 40 shows up 146 times. And it generally represents a time of testing, trial, or tribulation. Let me give you some examples. In the Old Testament, Israel was in the wilderness after crossing the Red Sea for 40 years as a test of faithfulness. Well, the promise of deliverance is available if they were obedient. Moses on Mount Sinai is there for 40 days, 40 nights. Meanwhile, back at camp, Israel is being tested for their faithfulness. And what happened? They failed with the golden calf. Remember, they kind of turned away from God to, to idols. But there was a promise of deliverance by God. This is in Exodus 34. Third example is Elijah. Led for 40 days and nights to Mount Sinai. And he was tested in dealing with the evil king Ahab. And the false prophets of Baal. Remember the guys that, that, that were, put the big uh, uh, altar up there and the fire came down and, and God proved his power there. And Elijah was at a time of, of testing, but it was a time also where God promised his deliverance. In each of these instances, the wilderness was a proving ground, a test of faithfulness, a promise of deliverance. And so here, Jesus at his baptism, the father declaring him as the beloved son, the one in whom his father is pleased. Is this going to be the case? Is Jesus going to follow through? What will happen in these 40 days of testing? It's a proving ground, a place of testing. And that's why as Israel was tested in the wilderness in the way to the promised land, Jesus would be tested in the wilderness at the start of his ministry. Do you see this? You know, it's interesting. If I was writing the story of Jesus, if I was Mark and you wanted to convince people about Jesus, you would have had the, the baptism, the dove, the announcement, then you would have gone right to another scene, maybe the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Or maybe you would have gone to Jesus feeding the 5,000 and people hanging on every word that he speaks. That would have been a great next scene. Or perhaps the triumphal entry when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. And the, remember the, the, the throng were crying out praise to him, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us. But no, the scripture says that Jesus entered into a lonely, 40-day, hungry, you know, tired, dangerous mission of testing. It reminds me of a principle in life. You see this in scripture. A peak experience in life is often, often followed by a time of temptation, a time of struggle. We have a tendency to think when trials or temptations come that God must have abandoned us or there must be something wrong with us or things would be easier. But the reality is even good people experience trials and temptations. James, Jesus' brother, who had conversation with Jesus, I'm sure, in the beginning of his little, God, little book, you know, the book of James, he starts off, considered all joy, Brothers and sisters, when you go through trials and testings or temptation, and he says it's, it's, it's part of the refining of your life, refining of your faith. It's an opportunity for you to draw near to God. Don't be surprised by it. Dave Dervecki was a, a famous baseball player, went through some great highs and lows. I love what he said about wilderness experiences in life. He said, I have learned that the wilderness is part of the landscape of faith. Every bit as essential as the mountaintop. On the mountaintop, we're overwhelmed by God's presence. In the wilderness, we're overwhelmed by his absence. Both places should bring us to our knees. The one in utter awe, 
the other in utter dependence. Maybe you're feeling today like you're going through a wilderness time. You just say, you know what, things aren't going like I expected. Set back relationally, maybe vocationally, maybe with your health, and you're saying, it just feels like I'm alone. It could be a time of testing. It could be a time where God's inviting you to lean into him, even though it's not easy, and to trust him. Jesus entered a period of testing. But secondly, Mark writes to us, he says, he also encountered, most significantly, spiritual opposition. The scripture says that, that he was tempted by Satan. Satan is a very real individual. Today we often think of Satan as just merely a personification of evil, or we think of Satan as simply superstition. But in scripture, Satan is presented as a very real adversary. That's what his name means, adversary. How is he referred to in the Bible? In Revelation 12, 9, it says, he's the deceiver of the whole world. <laughs> what a title. Have that on your business card. <laughs> a deceiver. What is portrayed here is the collision of two kingdoms, two rulers. Jesus the king, ruler over heaven, who has come to earth against Satan, the prince of the power of air and darkness. There's a conflict between God and his anointed one, Jesus, and every spiritual being and human that refuses to submit to Jesus. And when you read through Mark, you watch the tracing of that confrontation. In 1 John 3, 8, John, another disciple of Jesus, said, when people keep on sinning, it shows they belong to the devil, who's been sinning since the start. But the Son of God came to destroy the works of the devil. This is what's happening at this moment. As God's adversary, Satan is trying to subvert God's reign through his Son. There's a spiritual battle going on here. That's why he says Jesus has come to destroy the rule and the power of the devil. The devil must subvert this attempt. The wilderness is a proving ground, and Satan goes on the offensive against Jesus. He's real. The conflict is real. What hangs in the balance is our eternity. Peter recognizes the danger of this one. In 1 Peter, again, another disciple of Jesus who'd been with Jesus, he writes, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion, looking for someone to eat. <laughs> he wants to have you for lunch. If he can't get after God, he'll get after the things that matter to God the most, and that's his children. Then Matthew gives us the detail of this temptation. And you, we find as we study this that, that the Apostle John would write and he would talk about the temptations that we're drawn to inwardly, our vulnerability and our fallen human nature. He says, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These are the three common temptations that kind of the source places within us. Satan goes right after uh, those areas that would be the common temptations by three of them. So Matthew gives us detail. Let's look at those from Matthew 4. First one was a temptation to feed himself. What does he say to Jesus? If you are the Son of God, <laughs> it's interesting, kind of throws doubt right away, right? If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Why did he say this? Well, he knows Jesus is hungry. He knows that he's vulnerable. He's tired. It's been 40 days. He knows that the idea of eating food was the most tempting thing that he could throw at that moment into Jesus' mind. He wanted Jesus to abuse his power to meet his own needs. And he attacks him where he's most, at that moment, most vulnerable. He tries to get him to eat. Satan often does that, doesn't he? He tries to hit us where we're vulnerable, where we're weak. Sometimes not so subtly. Again, I, I, it's a fact of life, isn't it? Temptation does not hit you where you're strong. It hits you where you're vulnerable. If your business is thriving but your marriage is in trouble, guess where he's going to attack? But if your business is, your marriage is thriving and your, 
you're going through some struggles at work, guess where he's going to attack? He's going to find you where you're vulnerable and he's going to go after you. He wants to take you out. Jesus was, de- was tempted to depend on his own independent provision of food rather than rely on God. But he was going to do his father's will. So he answers Satan who throws scripture at him, you know, turn these stones to bread. And he, Jesus fires back with the word of God. You hit me with, I'm going to paraphrase it. You hit me with hunger, but God is concerned with my heart. And Jesus says that, there, that we also find food in the words that God speaks. Jesus knew that Satan wanted to short circuit the 40 days with the Father, 40 days of fasting, 40 days of preparation, and derail him into providing for his own needs. Jesus affirms his messianic mission. Submissively, you know, entrusts himself to the Father's plan rather than forcibly paving his own way to meet his own needs. There's a second temptation. The temptation, I call it, to lead yourself. If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down. He takes him up to this high point in the Temple of Jerusalem. I don't know if it's in a dream or if he just physically or spiritually takes him up there. We're not sure how it works. But he takes him to a place of prominence and shows him there. And he says, hey, throw yourself down. And then he kind of misquotes, misapplies Psalm 91 to make it seem as though God would be obligated to send angels to spare him. You say, what's going on here? What he's saying is, come on, Jesus. God will take care of you. Just jump. There was an unspoken implication. Are you really the Messiah? Will God really take care of you? Can you really trust him? Maybe he won't. Maybe you're not the Messiah. So why don't you put on a spectacular show of power? This temptation involved Jesus performing a miracle that would show off his supernatural power and draw attention to himself. He would use the power for his own benefit. But again, what does Jesus do? He speaks God's word in response to this temptation. Deuteronomy 6.16, going back to the wilderness narrative that I think Jesus is thinking about as he was in the wilderness, he says, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Kind of fires back the mistruth with the truth of God's word. Don't you put me, don't put my father to the test. You know, in John 8, verse 44, Satan is described as someone who is holding to the truth. There is, no, is not holding to the truth. There is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan deceptively portrays sin as acceptable, desirable, preferable, beneficial. He always gives you, it's kind of like seeing a lure in the water and a fish is going along and says, that thing looks delicious. <laughs> And I think the old evil one says, yeah, you'll love it. Bite in. It's going to be good. The Bible says, he who sins becomes a slave to sin. And he gets snapped in it. He always promises short-term gain, long-term consequence. You have to counter his lies with truth. Satan knows, knows what buttons to push. He'll use twisted logic. I've heard it over the years. He'll say things like, you know, God wants you to be happy more than anything. Right? So you'll never be happy as long as you're in this situation so God wants you to get out or get with somebody else or do something. And I think God would, would maybe have some other things to say about shaping and leading and helping and directing and maybe changing. God's great desire is not that we're happy. I think his first desire is that we're holy and that out of holiness comes wholeness and wholeness leads to joy. Jesus said that you would be knowing life abundant you would know life to the fullest, that my joy might be in you. Jesus says, obey me, the long-term benefit will pay itself out. 
or Satan says, you know, God doesn't want you to be, to be suffering and he, and he doesn't want you to go without the necessities of life and, and your kids need the, the money more than the government does. So you ought, to, you ought to just change your tax return. You ought to just cheat a little bit because God doesn't want you to, he doesn't want to sh- run you short. I remember somebody saying to me one time, you know, I, got, I, got, I, I have a girlfriend on the side, but you know, I, David had, you know, in the Old Testament, he had, he had Bathsheba, so it must be okay. I said, did you read the whole story? <laughs> I mean, you're lifting a verse out, buddy. His whole family was a disaster. Very few people could be tempted with the idea of doing something bad just for the sake of doing something bad. That we can all be tempted with the idea of doing something bad in order to, attri- to obtain something good. Satan hits Jesus with a third temptation. The temptation to avoid suffering. It, it, remember, this is a time of testing and in Matthew 4, verses 8 to 9, Satan shows to Jesus the kingdoms of this world and all their splendor, all of its luxury, all of its glory. And, and he says to Jesus, hey, all you have to do is worship me and it's yours. You say, what's going on here? Just bow down and worship me. Jesus was tempted to secure an earthly crown and bypass the suffering and sacrifice that he would endure on the cross. What Satan is saying, follow me and you can take a shortcut. You don't have to go through all this. You don't have to do a suffering. You don't have to. Just go with me, Jesus, and you can have it all. But the reality is, it wasn't a better plan. It's kind of ridiculous in a sense. Because he's offering to give to Jesus what he, Jesus already has and been promised by his father. God had declared Jesus to be king of king and lord of lords. The truth was that all creation would worship him. Every knee would bow. Every tongue would confess that Jesus is Lord. This has been God's promise through it all of eternity. This is his world. In fact, the book of Colossians says that Jesus created the world. This is his world. In the beginning was the word, John said. The word was God and the word was with God. That Jesus is the total, the source and everything. So here's Satan saying, I'll offer you things. <laughs> he can't doesn't have the power. This is the way temptation works. It offers something it can't really give. Something that only God can give. Temptation says to you, do this and you'll be happy. Do this and you'll have peace of mind. Do this, you'll feel good about yourself. But the devil can't give you happiness because it's not his to give. He can promise the world, but he can't give you the world because it's not his world to give. Only God can give you happiness. Only God can give you peace of mind. Only God can really give you a sense of well-being. Dr. Haddon Robinson said this about temptation. He goes, we're surrounded by seductions to live life apart from God. And our ambition, our successes, we're tempted to honor our own names, to build our own kingdoms. The The enemy of our souls wants to make us run away from God because only God can make us see it for what it is. Then he goes on, if temptation brought Chains to bind us, we might resist it on our own. Instead, no, it doesn't bind us, it entices us with promises of prosperity and unbounded freedom. Only God can keep us from its charms. I love how Jesus responds to Satan. He says, get lost, (laughs) go away, get away from me. And then he says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Jesus is saying, look, leave me alone. As I belong to God, I don't belong to you. I worship him, I don't worship you. Satan is trying to draw your ultimate allegiance away from God. 
Jesus says, you're not the boss of me. You know, when our kids were small, we had two older and one younger. And it seemed like whenever the older told the younger to do something, she would often respond with, you're not the boss of me. You ever, <laughs> one of the people after first said, their son used to say, you're not the boss of me, I'm the boss of me. But Jesus says, you're not the boss of me. I came to do my father's will. Well, you go back to Mark's account. He says not only did Jesus go to a place of testing and experience and confront the evil one, but he also says circumstantially he faced natural dangers. Jesus faced natural dangers. He was with wild animals. I read that the other day when I was studying this passage. I thought, the other gospels don't mention that. What were these wild animals? What was that about? And one writer said, well, perhaps if you think about it, go back to the beginning when Adam and Eve were tested by the evil one, and he came in his temptation. What happened? They were in a place of garden, not a wilderness. They're in a place of prosperity. They had everything they needed. They were at one with the animals. They were one with God. They kept company with God. They were not alone. They were together. There was intimacy. There was friendship. It was beautiful. Then the evil one came along and said, do you really, if, do you think God is holding out on you? And what they do? They took the bait. They ate the apple, and sin entered into the human family. He was the first Adam. Jesus is the last Adam. Jesus is doing part two. Adam was in the garden. Jesus is in the wilderness because of the fall. Adam was at peace with the animals, at peace with God, at peace with us. Here's Jesus having confrontation with the evil one in this place. And there's not animals at peace post-fall. There's animals in conflict. And Jesus is in a place of danger, taking threat, taking risk in his humanity. But he's ushering in something new. Maybe Mark mentions it because... He knew a new day was coming when God's going to usher in through his, his beloved, through his son, a new day. A day where there's restoration, where there's forgiveness, where God would reign again and there would be peace. It was a touch of the prophecy from Isaiah 46. Look at this text. God said to his people, for I'm about to do something new. I've already begun. Do you not see it? I'll make a pathway in the wilderness. There's that word. I'll, I'll, I'll create rivers and dry wasteland. The wild animals in the fields will thank me. The jackals and the owls too for giving them water in the desert. I will make rivers and dry wasteland so my chosen people can be refreshed. This is a prophetic statement. There's coming a new day when God is going to redeem things fully and it's began in Jesus. I think Mark is pointing us in that direction. Number four was Jesus was served by the angels. Mark says to us, and he was attended by the angels, Mark 1.13. That that was interesting. Matthew says after the temptations, the angels came and ministered to him. In a sense, it's like a, an, an example in the Old Testament was when Elijah was at a place of, of depletion and exhaustion and depression. And remember, an angel came and, 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 and God said to him, look, just rest and eat, just rest and eat, just rest and eat. It says the angels came and they, they attended to him. God was not only with Jesus at the end of the ordeal, but he was with him throughout the ordeal. I think Mark mentions the angels, and he mentions that a couple times through his book, is that Jesus was like God the Father. The angels attended to him. Only the Messiah, the Son of God, could be served by the angels in this way. This is the Son whom the Father loves. And Jesus succeeds against Satan. He stands up to the temptation. He resists what Adam couldn't. The children of Israel couldn't. The generations before Jesus couldn't. Jesus, the perfect son of God, was willing to stand. And God loves him and he loves you and he loves me. Jesus passes with flying colors. Adam failed the test. Israel failed the test. Jesus 
endured it. What does that say to us today? The writer of Hebrews says, you know, there's some profound implications for you and for me. In Hebrews chapter 2, he says, For surely it's not angels Jesus helps, but Abraham's descendants. That would be all of us. For this reason he had been made like them, fully human in every way, in order that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for sin. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. (laughs) Isn't that you and me? We have a Savior who understands, who's walked where we've walked, experienced what we've experienced, yet without sin. And Jesus says, follow me, trust me. Because the reality is we are in the wilderness on our way to the promised land of heaven. Sometimes we're enduring trials and suffering temptations. And Jesus is able to help us. He's able to help you and help me. God remains with us. Jesus said, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. I'll send my spirit. What do they call the Holy Spirit? A helper. That we don't give in to temptation. We've been free from the consequence of sin, but we've been also freed from the power of sin that we can be obedient to God, serving the one who gave his life for us. And when Satan comes, and he does, and he whispers his subtle little temptations, or maybe not so subtle, and tries to lead you to give you the promise of short-term gain, but you know long-term pain, you can say, no, I follow Jesus, God's son who loved me and gave his life for me. Let me give you a couple of practical applications or just a few of them on temptation. First one is this. Temptation and trials often come after times of great blessing. You and I will experience our own wilderness times, times of testing. As I said, James says, don't be surprised by some of those fiery trials that you experience. And the wilderness is a place of discovery. And God will never allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able to handle by his power. The Bible says his grace is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in our weakness. Paul says, that's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insult and hardship or persecutions or difficulties. Because when I'm weak, what does he say? That I'm strong. Strong in the one who is with me, who helps me, who's gone through it. Secondly, is God will guide you and give you the wisdom you need to prevail. Friends, Don't confront temptation in your own strength. But in God's strength, the Holy Spirit will provide power to resist. The Bible says, remember here, he who suffered will help those who are being suffered. Or or he suffered when he was tempted. He'll help us when we're tempted. And that template is given to us as Jesus goes through this. I think as God helped Jesus, he will help us. God was with them, caring for them all the way, and he's there for you and me. And remember something, when temptation comes, the Bible promises there is a way out. You're not helpless, hopeless, you know, or hapless. No, there is a way out. The Bible says resist the devil and he'll flee from you. Don't give in. It says come near to God and he will come near to you. When you feel temptation come, just say, you're not the boss of me. I'm not going this way. I'm going a different way. I'm not following your way. I'm following God's way because I know he is for me. And if I go his way, it will lead me to life and peace and joy. One thing I noticed about Jesus, what he did when temptation came, he didn't, you know, have a great long theological discourse with Satan. He just responded with the truth. Jesus, I think, set a great example for us. He said, it is written. You know, he just said, this is what God said and I'm going with it. Learn God's word that you're prepared when temptation comes your way. What did the psalmist say? 
Your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. One of the great defenses is a good offense. And a great offense is to have the word of God close to your heart. Quote scripture. You know, many of us will face life-defining temptations. I was, in preparing the talk, I was thinking back on life, and I was going, this was a ministry-defining temptation for Jesus. Because had he gone with Satan, the cross wouldn't have happened. He wouldn't have suffered for us. But we wouldn't have salvation, either, or forgiveness. And Satan had great, great, you know, plans for Jesus not to be our Savior. Maybe you faced one of those life-defining moments. When I was a young pastor back, I was probably in my late 20s, had a young family. Uh, church was going along pretty good. Things were fine. All of a sudden, one day, there was a, a knock on the door. My assistant said, hey, someone would like to have a few minutes with you. Can you see them? Sure. You know, bring, bring them in. The gal came in, and, and uh, I said, what's up? And she said, I just, I just wonder if, if you could read this letter. And she handed me a letter, and I opened it. And the letter basically explained how she was struggling in her marriage, and things were not going well, and what her husband was doing, and it was difficult. And she said, but... I just wanted to let you know that, that I've, I've really had feelings for you. And as I read on, I shouldn't, have the, well, this kind of, you know, I shouldn't have these feelings, but I do this kind of stuff, and I thought you needed to know. What do I need to know? She was very beautiful. And in that moment, I recognized that this is one of those defining moments of life. What are you going to do with it? And you know, I was thinking about, what, what's the preparation for a moment where, where someone's basically saying, are you interested? I've been preaching in the Old Testament, the life of Joseph. And one of the passages that I had been looking at at that time was where Joseph is tempted by Potiphar's wife. She comes to him and says, hey, Joseph. I mean, she kind of cuts the chase. If you read this, it's an interesting story. It sounds like something you'd read out of, of you know, Hollywood movie. She goes, Joseph, come sleep with me. <laughs> that was subtle. And Joseph's response is really interesting. I mean, she's a trophy wife. She's the wife of the Pharaoh of Egypt. I mean, she's... She's likely beautiful. And, and so what does Joseph say? It's interesting. He goes, your, your, your husband has placed me in this position of authority, with responsibility. All this kingdom is under my leadership. Basically, how could I do this against your husband? But there's a, the next line to me was so powerful. Joseph says, how could I do this and sin against God? And when I was preaching that passage, I looked at that line. And I thought, you know, it's interesting that Joseph is saying, I could do this and I would violate the trust of your husband. But I would also violate the trust of God. I would relationally violate your husband in, 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 in breaking this. But listen, faith describes our walk with God relationally as, as in a relational affront to the holiness, and the kindness, and the grace of God. How could I do this? One speaker used this expression. He says, when we sin, we commit cosmic treason. Oh, it's not just blowing through a stop sign. This is a relational affront. And I was thinking, when we sin, we, we kind of shake our fist in the face of a God who gave his life for us and endured a wilderness experience like this and suffered always as we did, ultimately to a cross. And we're saying, uh, it doesn't matter. How could I do this and sin against God? Cosmic treason. And I, at that moment, said to this gal, and I, I believe the Holy Spirit gave this. It was the title of a book. Simply, Turn Your Heart Toward Home. Counsel her. I said, hey, look, you need to get some marriage counseling. You and your husband need to get some help. This is, this is not an option. This is, no. You, you need 
you need, you need to work on it. No. When we were done, I went back. Matter of fact, I thought, you know what? I, I pray, Jesus, this, whoo. So I went to my, my assistant who was in the next office. I said to him, hey, read this. He read it. And I said, hey, look, at, man, you, you just keep an eye on me because Satan would love to take me out. So I, I did the third thing. I thought, you know what? We're as sick as our secrets, so we need to be honest. So I went home and I thought, I've got to tell my wife. Because I think we've always had a trusting relationship. And I think what, one of the ways that you build trust in a relationship is to be open with each other. You keep no secrets. What do they say in recovery? You're as sick as your secrets. So I said, honey, would you read this? Sat down at lunch. She said, oh, you're home early. <laughs> okay, I need to talk to you. Sat down. I said, would you read this, sweetheart? So she read the letter. She got down at the very end of it. She put it down the table. She looked up at me. Guess what she said? She reached over and patted me on the head. She says, oh, Keithy, somebody likes you. <laughs> Man, she, she just killed my ego. I had, I had gone home kind of feeling like big man on campus, you know. And less of the flesh, less of the eyes, the pride of life. I was so thankful for her security and our relationship and our love. She also said something about if you ever thought of doing this, they wouldn't find your body. I don't know, maybe something along that line, you know. But we talked and... Maybe you're facing, right now in this season, feels a little bit like wilderness, a life-defining temptation. It might be you want to, you're just tempted to go AWOL with faith. Maybe that coworker has been casting, you know, uh, a few lines your way that you just know are signals. Maybe it's in an economic realm where you're just really, you're just tempted to take a shortcut for short-term relief, and you know it'll be long-term pain. Our Savior endured temptation that you and I could as well. We're not alone. God is for us. Choose to do his way. Because, you know, I look back on that, because I'm way down the road now. And I see a picture of my family. You know, my kids and their spouses, my grandkids, and I see them, I think, oh, Jesus, thank you for your grace and strength not to have made one of those defining decisions that would have cost so much. Would have broken a couple families, would have broken up children's trust, would have broken up a congregation's trust. And it would have been another story of a leader fallen. And thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Now, I want to say one more thing. There's probably somebody in a room this size where you blew through the stop sign. You, you said yes. And, and here's what Satan does. Once you cross the line, you know what he throws at you? <laughs> he becomes the accuser, the scripture says. And he says, oh, you're a loser. What kind of Christian are you? What kind of person are you? You know what? I bet you God doesn't want you anymore. Someone who does that, and he shames you, and he blames you, and he accuses you. And if you put on your business card, it'll be just your name and regret. That's not Jesus. It's not the Holy Spirit. The Bible says if you confess your sin, repent of your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin, but to cleanse us. Jesus went to a cross so you wouldn't have to. In a humility, and you may have felt the brokenness of a big mistake in life, come to Jesus because he's saying to you, hey, I, I know. I know already. I saw the whole thing. I know it was a mistake. I know you feel the consequence. I, I, you're probably living out the consequence right now, but come to me. Come to me. 
I will forgive you, restore you. I'll make you clean again. I'll bury your sin in the deepest sea that you can walk with me in newness of life. Amen? Wow. There's a wideness in God's mercy. Would you bow your head and heart right now? This is, friends, where we're living, isn't it? Our culture right now is a little bit of a wilderness. There's temptations just popping up around us. Oh, Jesus, I pray that we would live for you. You are the boss of us because you're entirely trustworthy. Help us to stand against temptation, to see the the subtle tricks of the evil one who appeals to our old nature and tries to lead us in a ditch. May we stand strong for you, Jesus. And Lord, maybe there's someone here today who's came into church and there's been this accusatory blame over them because of past failure. I pray they'd come to you and drink from your mercy. Experience your forgiveness. Be able to say, Jesus, I'm yours. And just experience the love of God in their heart today. Lord, thank you for being an amazing Lord. Step out of heaven into the human family with a great desire that we could be in community with you. We love you with all of our hearts, Lord, and desire to serve you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening, and thank you for giving. Your giving makes this podcast possible and helps us share this message with others. If today's message made you realize that you need to take your next step with Jesus, we'd love to help you with that. The easiest way to do that is by going to beulah.family on your browser. On that page, you'll find our social media links, links to upcoming events, and a link to give. And don't forget to subscribe and share this podcast. We'll see you soon.